Right, so first question is from Matt. What's your thoughts on if you shoot a deer without a dog, should you introduce your dog to the body carcass of the deer if the dog is not hunting yet? So my notes on this is, this is Matt's talking about, and, and Matt asked this question in the inner circle, and I, I asked him this. Um, I said, do you mean when you bring a deer home? So Matt's meaning you've got a pup that you're training to be a deer dog and while that pup isn't at the stage of hunting yet um, but if you're a hunter you're going out hunting anyway and shooting deer and bringing the deer home so it's quite a, a relatively common occurrence for a lot of people that are training a deer dog they're a hunter already um, they're bringing deer you know they're shooting deer and bring, bringing it home to cut it up and put the meat in the freezer and all that sort of thing so He's basically asking, um, should I be, and Matt's actually got a six-month-old Labrador pup that he's training on the deer dog training blueprint, um, and he's basically asking, you know, when I go hunting and shoot a deer and bring it home, should I introduce my pup to it? Should I avoid it? Um, what should I do? And um, so my notes on this is, it is okay to do it, but be really careful. Um, and this comes up again later, and this is a real sequencing thing, eh? I've talked about sequencing um, in dog training before, where uh, and sequence, sequencing is just doing all of the right things, but more importantly, in the right order. You can do all the right things, but if you get the order wrong, you can actually create some pretty big problems. And actually really big. And this is one of those things that some people would, you know, that's just trained a couple of dogs, never really thought about it, never really thought about helping a whole, a big bunch of other people to train dogs. They've just got their own dog. Um, they've had a couple of dogs. They've been okay. And they're looking at it as an observer and they just say, um, oh, don't worry about it, mate. I oh, bloody just do it. You know, like, oh, sure. Scott, and like sort of scoff at it. Um, but it's one of those things, and I've, I've talked about this a lot in Q&As before, is there's a lot of things that are fine nine times out of ten, uh, 80 times out of 100, 90 times out of 100, but occasionally these stupid little things, when the worst thing happens right at the wrong time, that seems like it was nothing, rears its head again later and it's just a pain in the ass. And if it isn't uh, a major thing that causes this major disaster, it could just be one of those things that just knocks the little edge off something with your dog and it just softens your dog up just a little bit for something later on. Um, and that's why I say some of these situations, because I've seen all of this stuff, some of these situations you do have to be careful because it can pop up again later on. When you train lots of dogs, work with lots of dogs and work with lots of people and their dogs, you see every single last little thing and you see it, uh, how it can just affect things a little bit and just be a little bit niggly and every now and again it can be a real pain in the ass like a lot of work <laughs> and it was because of 
one of these situations that someone says, um, oh, don't worry about that, man, it's just a load of bullshit, you can just do this, or I did this with my dog, and it turned, when, in actuality, if everyone followed that advice, a lot of people would have mild issues, and a few people would have real serious issues, you know, particularly when it's that incomplete advice of just, oh, that's a load of bullshit, I did that with my dog, and my dog's good, so people march off away with that and go and start doing stuff and uh, start getting into real trouble with some of these basic things, you know. So um, that's why I say it's okay to do it, but be really careful. Um, and some of the types of things that I would be careful here is things like um, just the situation where someone just brings a, do a deer home, dumps it in the driveway, and and a whole bunch of people are around, and there's another dog, there's a couple of other dogs there, and your pup's there, and if another dog snaps at your pup, the very first time your pup ever carefully approaches a deer, another dog snaps at your pup. That's not good. Um. Uh. Make sure there's not too much going on. That's actually quite a big moment with a pup or a dog when it is when it's approaching its first um, dead deer on the ground, especially with a young pup, like a six-month-old pup. And there's these different markers, you know, in a dog's career as it gets older. Um, it might be might be a young dog that's actually seen quite a few deer but there's always been an older dog there and a certain handler or something like that and it might have seen um, five hinds and two spikers or something over a year of its career or something like that and then someone else takes it hunting and they shoot a big stinking rutting stag with big antlers and someone else is there and that other person's all bolshy like, oh shit, this is a bloody good stag, isn't it? And they're picking up the antlers and waving them around. Shit, look at the and, and there's no thought to the dog in that situation and what the dog's doing. They're not reading the dog. They're not there's no thought for what the situation and everything in it, how it may be being perceived by the dog, and how what what they are doing and everything that is happening may affect the dog. I see it all the time. So that's what I'm saying. Be really careful. Um, we go over all of the stuff, like mountains of it in the blueprint. And um, watching print approach... It's actually his second deer that he saw was a really good example. Um, I shot a stag and the shot wasn't great and we tracked it and we come around this court, come over this brow and all of a sudden the stag was just right in front of us, um, like five metres away from print or something. Um, and I had a subsonic and I shot it again over print, um, both shots at it with subsonics, finished it off. Um, but that, so that ended in like print indicating it. I hit it once, then we tracked it, caught up to it, um, 
print just we just come over this little brow you know we're just tracking tracking then we come over this little brow and all of a sudden shit the stag's right there in front of us and it's sort of trying to get away but it can't and it's making a whole bunch of noise and stuff pretty full on and then bang i shoot it again i think i shot it, i think i headshot it and next thing whack it's flat on the ground sort of kicking a bit and then done and then prints like three or four meters in front of me and he's got his first stag laying dead right in front of him and he's just like locked up on it for ages and I just I don't send him in I don't say where you go I don't say good boy come here nothing I just I just stood dead still and um print really slowly started moving in you know um these moments with dogs are really important and, and things going wrong you know if someone was standing behind me and they went right oh let's bloody get on in there shit that was a good shot and all of that it's like um you can really distract a dog um bowling in past the because print was on a locked up like basically pointing and then he started moving in real slowly and me waiting and stopping and just letting him absorb it and do it the way he wanted to do it. Um, if he had a rushed in, I would have said, ah, cut it out. But right in that moment when he's locked up on it, that's exactly how I want him to be around deer and after the shot. I want everything to just be steady. I've trained him to stop to the shot. I don't want him moving in on deer too fast. I want him to lock up, be calm, slow, steady, basically not do anything unless I tell him to in those moments. So it's a really, really important moment. I'm just, he's learning so much in that moment. And, and it, that's what I mean about these real key markers. Like the way a dog's dealing with that first deer and the way that all panned out and I was using that opportunity to just let him really absorb it and soak it in. And the more times you hit those markers perfectly in those ways, it's the same all of the way through training. Um, you know, the way you very first introduce... the the way we very first start using the recall command with the long line on, the way we very first start doing the stop command with the long line on, we're doing everything in a way that the dogs basically has no opportunity to get it wrong. It just sets it up so solid. And and this, this sequencing thing with scent and hunting comes up again later on in this Q&A here. Um, man... As far as like the quality of the way a dog hunts and the way you you're sequencing and the way you um, introduce it to different markers like that and and there's a couple of real important ones coming up in this in the question later on. Um, the the time codes will be in this Q and A if you want to st skip forward to that. Just look in the time codes on YouTube, and it'll be something about um, training and scent and stuff. Just look in the time codes in the description on YouTube. 
I'm not, I'm not going to start getting into it now, otherwise this question's answer is going to blow right out. Um, but, so there's doing it all properly in a way that the dog can't get it wrong and then there's not interjecting, like interrupting at a key point like that, like right there, right there. And that's one of those things like, oh, stuff all this bullshit, just walk in there, mate. It's a, oh, I had my dog and this, that. No. <laughs> like that moment with that dog locked up on its first deer like that and he's just saw all that happen he indicated it he tracked it I shot it uh Cola the famous dog trainer Cola talked about you can wash away what you've just done with too much praise he talked about you can wash away what you've just taught your dog in training with too much praise. People do it all the time. A young pup that's just learning to sit and you've been working on it for ages and it finally does an okay sit and, is, and, and instead of just giving it a moment in that moment and just giving it a calm pat, real calm pat, good dog. Good. That's just letting it know, good dog, you're doing the right thing. Calmly step back, pause, wait, move. Let it look at you, think, absorb, learn, then release it. It's really important because if right in that moment, right as the pup's starting to click and going, oh, Okay, so after you say sit, I just sit and you pat me and then I wait and then we go and, and they go through these moments where the gears are just grinding and they're just clicking. If riders you're getting up to that marker, you go, good dog, good boy. They totally forget and give them this big rough pat, good dog. They to it just blows their whole situation to bits. And the dog literally can't absorb what's happening in that moment. So many people are like that the whole time. Like that example of Print locked up on that deer and he's just, everything is all unsure for him. He's just like blown away in this moment. Like we've been done all this training with skin work. We've been hunting deer for days. We've spooked heaps. I actually shot one the night before. But the circumstances are very, very different. He hadn't indicated it, nothing. I just saw a deer, shot it. He, we were just walking and all of a sudden, bang, I fired a shot. Um, and I and the deer was on the other side of the creek. I had to take him over to it. And there was just this little hind laying dead on the rocks over there. He had no idea it was there. I just shot it. And... Um, but the stag was totally different. That he indicated it first, and I shot it, and it ran away, and he was steady when it ran, and then he tracked it, and then he come right over the brow, and it was right in front of him, and I shot it, and he saw he. That's the whole sequence of events, and it was actually even driven home harder because 
of the fact that it was two shots and then he tracked it and and it was right in front of him. That's actually a really important marker in itself is when a dog actually takes you in on a deer, it's locked up and you shoot it, bang, and the deer falls over and the dog clicks like, oh, we look for them, I show you where they are, you shoot them and that's how we get them. I talked about this in Q&As before. It can actually take a long time for a dog. You can shoot a lot of deer over a dog and the, and it still doesn't know what's going on. It's just like, let's just, we just find them and sometimes there's a bang and sometimes we, we they're dead and sometimes they're not and it's just like doing it and it's not actually clicking like on the sequence of events. Remember, they've only got the IQ of a three-year-old human. Very, very basic, simple thinking, and it takes them quite a bit to, like, absorb and learn and realise exactly what's happening. So that moment where Print creeps over that hill, all of a sudden the deer's right there, it's jumping around, and bang! And then he's just locked up on it, that's one of those moments where the longer that can play out, very calm and slow, and as long as the dog's going to do it okay on its own, then let it and give it heaps of time. If it gets silly, and because that, that's sort of what happened there, Prince just stayed locked up on it and he just stood there for ages. And then he sort of slowly started creeping in. And I waited like a minute more just standing there. Do a timed minute. Like, should I just stop talking now and do a timed minute? And we'll just sit here saying nothing for a minute? It's quite a long time. How often do people actually just shut up and let something happen for a minute? Even though a minute's a ridiculously short amount of time, you get... My point, the point I'm trying to make here. So, um, and then eventually I just gave print. He, he just wasn't going to move in. And he was basically following my lead at that point. He was sort of ended up on a bit of an automatic stop and was just standing there. So I just really gently, I didn't go, good boy, and all that shit. I just went, my go command, nice and quiet. Boy, good boy. And we really slowly moved up. And I slowly, calmly unloaded my gun, put that down, check the deer, dead. Good boy, good boy. Just calm, pat, everything calm and slow. Like, give the dog an opportunity to learn and, like, absorb what's going on here. So that's the important thing. And, and in the blueprint, I take you through all of those markers of of the and all the sequencing is correct and the way we handle it is correct. And that's why like early on in the blueprint, I say only do what I'm doing here because uh, like the there's enough in the just doing just talking about what I do in the blueprint it's 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 15 hours you know of dense <laughs> d 
dense information. Like it's a lot to absorb. It's quite the undertaking. You've really got to just take it step by step and go through it bit by bit and rewatch it and rewatch it and just train your dog. And it takes like a year or more. So to start adding every single last thing that you could possibly do, and that's the the whole function of these Q and A's, you know, is to get into these questions. And that's why they're long, because there is a lot to it. And that's what I mean about um, the guy that says, oh, I want a load of bullshit, just do it. All that pissing around and overcomplicated bullshit. Like, man, if everyone did that, <laughs> well, that's where I started my dog training career is, is helping people that when that was the only advice that was out there, um, man, pe- people were coming to me with just disaster zones of dogs. Like the the shit we were trying to fix <laughs> was totally nuts, you know. Um, and and the the one on ones I do now with people that come to me with a dog that they're training on the blueprint is t- just work, couldn't be any more different. Um. So hence the input. That, that's why I started this whole answer off with that talk about things that can seem subtle but actually aren't and it just it just go it just goes down like this rabbit hole that just uh and if <laughs> it it gets um so many different elements to it like I've taught the same as um I talk about straight line dog training as long as you're on that straight line uh you're pretty good to go you'd have to Search on my YouTube channel, Straight Line Dog Training, and listen to that podcast. Um, I'm not going to get into it here, otherwise this, again, this uh, sort of blow right out again. But um, as long as you stick to the system, it's workable. Once you start going off the system, there's just it's just this unlimited amount of possibilities and mistakes. Literally unlimited. Like the, well, I've got the blueprint is that system of dog training that you can follow. There's literally, obviously, an unlimited amount of things that you can do with a dog outside of that, and um, it gets very difficult to answer every question. Um, and and in an answer like this, it's more explaining why. You know, some of these simple things, man. You, you, you really can create some trouble with it. And this is why I say, (laughs) um, and without explaining it, and so far this is a 25-minute answer, without like a decent bit of an in-depth talk about it, um, the only other answer is, look, just don't. (laughs) For now, like until I can explain it better, just don't, okay? Just don't, man. Um, and and uh, because there's so there's a million different things that could happen. Um, and to do it perfectly, it pretty much comes back to how, what I show you to do in the blueprint with how we do our first skin training. And there's a reason why we don't do scent work earlier, and it's so we can handle it perfectly so we actually have a bit of dialogue with the dog and we have a stop go come it's good on the long line it's good at walking in front 
so we can actually manage the situation. And you actually have a dialogue of the dog is, ah, don't do that. And the dog knows, ah, it's not a huge deal. It's just like, okay, not meant to do that. So it stops and good dog, good dog. Okay, so you actually have a stop and a go or a yes and a no. And a that's what I want you to do. That's not what I want you to do. And it's amazing um, even doing one-on-ones with people that have got that are on, that have got the blueprint, they've done a, quite a bit of work with the blueprint, but they've also got really busy and got quite off track. It's amazing how you can actually do a fair bit of work, but your dialogue can be a little bit off. Like your pra- your praise isn't quite set up right. Um, your yes and no, good and bad, aren't quite right things like that so that's why we we leave things like even just the introduction to scent work but then it's funny how I say it like that even just as if it's not a big deal but that's our initial point of introducing to the dog to the whole reason that we're training it you know Um, so it's actually quite a big deal and so what's your thoughts on if you shoot a deer Without the dog, should you introduce your dog to the body carcass if they're not hunting yet? Um, so again, I'll go back to my notes here. Um, this is if you bring a deer home, you know, you shoot a deer and you've got your pup in the kennel and, hey, should I let the dog out, show it the deer? Um, in my notes, it's okay to do it, but be really careful. Make sure another dog doesn't snap at it. That's would be a big one, quite a common one. Um, Make sure there's not too much going on. Even just silly, silly stuff like um, all your mates are there, there's five people and everyone's walking around and stuff and and, uh, right while the pup is, and it's dark because you've got home in the dark and that, and right while the pup's just creeping around the back to have a look at it, your mate steps in to like look at the antlers or something and then steps back and steps on the pup's foot and half trips over the dog and um, just something stupid like that, you know. Um, make sure there's not too much going on and basically handle it the way um, I do it in the blueprint. Um Give the dog plenty of time to suss it out and get comfortable. That's the main thing. If you're introducing the pup to it, this is its first time ever seeing a deer. The biggest key is is that it goes well and that the dog knows, oh, this is a positive thing, something I'm meant to be interested in, but it, it, but also all calm and in the right way as well, you know. Um It's not an issue as long as nothing negative happens. Um, That's the thing. It's not an issue as long as nothing negative happens. Um, And uh, and that's that's pretty much it. So and like it's funny too, because thinking about it, um, trying to remember, Prince saw deer. I can't remember. I I don't think I put it in the blueprint. but, you know, I shot deer with fly in that. Um, at, one, at some time, Prince saw a deer. I can't, like, I, 
I've just sort of got half a memory of it. And but, um, you know, and I, because I've seen this exact thing, I've had that. Like, hey, should I let the dog out? Should I let print out? Um, and it's like. And when it happened, here's the main point, and I think you obviously get it from the whole ramble here. Um, I'm not just like, yeah, let them out, whatever, and I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, let them out. If there's another dog there that I know might be silly, lock that dog up, everyone. My pup's coming out now. I just want this to be chill and, like, um, I don't want anything bad to happen here. This is quite important. Let the pup come and see the deer. Um, it might take the pup, you don't want to like encourage the pup too much either because you don't want them to encourage them to charge in on a deer because all we're doing, our whole training is like that they approach them slowly and basically stop back from them and point and indicate and all of that sort of stuff. You don't want to create confusion there. So you're not like, good dog, come on, where you go, let's get it, let's get in there. Um, but you also want them to know that it's all good. That it's a good thing, that they are meant to show interest. So it's a bit of a paradox, sort of a bit of a con there's a bit of contradictory stuff going on there, which complicates the situation a little bit. Um so if you're not going to overly encourage the pup to charge in there, which you don't want to do, then a pup or a dog may actually take a fair bit of time. To walk, to walk right up to a dead deer and actually start sniffing it and licking it and then get relaxed and and next thing it's tails wagging and everything and then you can calmly say good girl, good girl. It may take a minute, two, three. So it is something that needs to be done in a sort of structured way um, and relatively carefully. Right, uh, time codes for the next question. So you guys can click straight through to them on YouTube. It's quite the hit that, um, bringing the time codes back. Next question, Brendan. How do you vary your pace walking through the bush with the dog when searching for a scent or a wind versus stalking in on a deer on a direct wind scent. Is there a case for walking ridges, spurs, creeks, etc. at a near hiking pace to cover more ground in order to get onto a wind scent? Onto a scent or a wind? Um, man, it's a big topic. It really is. That's my first note on that. Um... Yeah, like you talk, you that you're really talking hunting strategy and like exactly what you do all day based on what's happening. And there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it, man. Big question, <clears throat> but I'll answer it as best I can here. So, um, first note on this is a hundred percent. So you're saying, is there a case for walking ridges, spurs, creek, etc., at a near hiking pace to cover more ground in order to get onto a scent or a wind a hundred percent um you can walk in certain scenarios you can walk relatively quickly 
Um, you're basically talking about using the dog, like really using the dog as an indicating dog, which is, you know, a really important use for it. Um, you're talking about just, man, I'm just going to move out until my dog indicates a deer and then I'm going to sneak in on it. And 100%, like it's a, it's a really big part it's a really big part of what makes a deer dog so an indicating dog, big game indicating dog, deer indicating dog, so effective is um, within reason, and that's what I'll get into here. Uh, I've got a lot more notes on this. Um, you can use that dog to indicate you know, basically wherever the wind's coming from and you know nothing's in there and then you can just move through it faster. Whereas without that dog, you could have the perfect wind coming out of a big gully or something or down a creek and you still don't know if there's a deer around the corner. But for example, one of my notes here is... Um, uh, Yeah, like hunting in a, I thought I had this note. Yeah, here, hunting up a creek with the wind coming down. So that would be a classic. So um, whether it's early in the morning and the cool breeze is still coming down, late in the evening when the wind's cooling and the breeze is coming down, or just the wind might be coming up a creek too. But in a creek, in a valley, where your, your main, it's all bush up the side, but it's a nice open, if there's a deer up the side, you're probably not going to see it because it's all just bush clad and you're down in the creek and you're in a nice creek, might be a decent sized creek and you, the aim of you being there, the way that you're hunting, you're really just looking for a deer in the creek. You know, often you've got a lot of clearings and feed and stuff in the creek and it's called, it's creek hunting. Any experienced hunter knows it really well um so you're creek hunting and you've got a good wind in your face it might even be the middle of the day um and that's just the direction the wind's going sometimes you sometimes it can be really difficult every now and again for whatever reason um again when the wind's cooling in the evening you can get that really steady downhill breeze sometimes once the sun's up um and and uh the sun's shining into the creeks and that and the day's heating up, it can start travelling uphill too, upstream. Every now and again, you get a really good consistent wind in your face in a creek. Even up to like a, a if the river gets real big, it's different. Um, you can have the wind in your face on one side and there could be a deer you know, out on a flat two, three hundred metres away on the other side that the dog can't indicate. Um, from where it is if the river gets huge but anything up to like quite a big creek and with a really good wind the in your face the dog's basically going to indicate um, anything coming up so you just start and from a long way away too sometimes by the way and I've even seen situations where um there's deer on a slit like quite far up out of the creek, 100 metres up out of the creek um, and the wind's coming down that slit 
into the creek and down the creek and the dogs indicating those deer from like three, four hundred meters away. Um, so you can start walking up a creek with the wind in your face and look at the dog and the dog's just got very little interest. It might be ground tracking, it'll be checking the wind and cruising around, but it's not indicating hard straight up the creek. And you can just start walking. So yeah, you can start moving out and in that scenario I would I would just start boosting um and covering ground and then um if as I started walking with a really good wind sometimes the dog will start indicating from a long way out and they'll just get little catches if it's real far away they'll start getting excuse me they'll start getting little bits and pieces of it and you'll think oh that actually looks like there might be something up here and then you come around the next corner into another good straight bit of wind and the dog gets even keener and as you get closer, the dog will get keener and keener and keener. Sometimes if it's a really good wind, um, you sort of get in that situation where the dogs, and, and especially if it's a few animals, if it's just one animal, um, only giving off that certain amount of scent, um, the dog will just get bits and pieces, and the dog often won't get real keen until you get relatively close to it. Most of the situations when I've seen dogs winding like mad from way out, it's because there's several animals, even just three or four animals, and it might be a situation where it's usually a day like where it's been raining at night um, or it's rained that morning. There's a lot of moisture in the air. The animals are wet, and then the sun comes out, so they're, they're just steaming off, you know, like a, the old saying, a wet dog. Well, a wet deer is pretty stinky too, so is a goat or a pig anything and different conditions lend themselves to dogs being able to carrying scent generally damp conditions are, are better because the scent actually attaches to moisture in the in the air um, and in very dry air it's got nothing to travel on but in in good conditions um, <clears throat> with several animals I've seen it Dogs indicate animals like 800 metres away. That's extreme, but I have seen, and rare, but I have seen it. Um, and sometimes you actually get into a situation where the dog's indicating, indicating, and you're like, man, this, the, this could be a deer just around the corner, but you keep going and going and going and going and going. Um, and next thing you get right up to a slip or something and come around the corner and there's like four deer up on the slip 100 metres up out of the creek. And you're like, holy shit, that's the dog's been indicating them from like half an hour back. Um, you know, so you'll, there'll always be an element of risk. You know, you, if you're charging up a creek and a deer might be coming down the face out of some gut that the wind's not coming out of and you might come around the... Because that's the other thing, eh, is a deer can be moving. You might have the wind in your face, so you're just marching out and a deer can move sometimes, like quite far, quite quickly, especially if they're coming down to feed or going downhill, moving from side to side or whatever. Um, sometimes deer can move fairly quickly at quite a bit of a trot downhill, and um, they can just pop up in front of you. So, you know, you've got to watch out for that. And the the deer can sort of pop up right in front of you right as the dog's just hitting the wind and it can all happen at the same time um, 
but there is a case for that a hundred percent um <clears throat> traveling pretty quickly just looking at the dog and just moving until the dog gets onto a good scent and then um follow that up then start sneaking. It's a huge, huge element of having a big game indicating dog or a deer dog. Um, quite regularly, if you're going upstream with that wind coming down, the wind's often coming down the faces into the creek and then down the creek. And regularly when you're heading up a creek like that, the dog will indicate up the side into the bush. That's really, really common too. And you can decide, are you going to go up there after that? Um, or are you going to keep going up the creek? Often going back to sequencing and and like knocking the edge off something that a dog does, um, like if you hit all those markers perfectly and you get your sequencing bang on, and you've never knocked an edge off a dog by doing something incorrectly, um, like they just hunt like like Prince like that. He's just, Fly was like that too, almost over the top, like, and, you know, indicating deer like 800 metres away and um, indicating fresh sign, like you're going up a creek and it's in the dogs winding and indicating up the side, you're like shit. There seems like a deer. There's a deer up there, and you go up there, and he's just indicating where a, a stinky stag was on a damp morning, where a stag was like half an hour ago, but that stag's now like 400 meters up the side and on the ridge and dropping down the other side. And so you go up there, and then you start tracking. And then if you want to keep following that up, you'll follow it for half the morning and end up way the hell up over the other side. Um. so you know and then that's all about reading what's happening as it's happening and looking at it and going well understand knowing the area understanding where you're going um, and you're always it's always like an algorithm in your head you know working out what you should be doing what's the wind doing what are the conditions of like where am I going to go what am I going to do that's what I mean, like this question being a huge question. Um, it sort of expands out into the overall picture of hunting and weather and time of year and animal habits and uh, that you know the, the style of country that you're hunting and the style of hunting that you're there to do whether you're bow hunting or rifle hunting or bush stalking or long range hunting or what caliber what's your, what scope have you got how are you hunting what are you doing what's your capabilities where are you what's the terrain like like it's it gets big you know um So, but again, going back to like how, what I originally started saying here, there's 100% a, an argument for walking fast, watching the dog and then reacting to that, you know. Um, and like that case of ending up half a day away 
Like it started off from a real keen indication just out of the creek and you go up the side and then if you just start, and then if the, if the dog, because the dogs will wind fresh sign and that's all in the blueprint. We talk about that and at length or explain, demonstrate all of that. Um, the dog will wind fresh sign. If the dog's winding, winding, climbing, climbing, and I, and I go up like 60 metres up the side and next thing the dog puts its nose down, starts tracking and I see fresh marks and shit and then follow that up another 20 metres and the dog's still just tracking, winding occasionally but just tracking, then I'm like, okay, we're tracking now, which sometimes can be good. Sometimes I follow up tracking. It can be a really powerful tool. It can be bloody time consuming too and now, now I've got a decision to make. Do I want to start tracking here and start bush stalking today and end up way the hell up there? Or should I just drop back down into the creek and keep going up the creek and try to get a direct wind off something? By the way, that wind up the side could have turned into climb 50 metres up the side. Next thing, Prince like half locked up and there's a deer right there too. Sometimes you've got to spend that 10 minutes just having a look, sussing it out. But generally too, if it is a deer, like there's a, I've got videos um, on that, on um, the Paul John Michaels YouTube channel, also Big Game Indicating Dogs YouTube channel. Um, there's actually a video on Big Game Indicating Dogs, I think it's called Hunting, Hunting Deer Over Indicating Dogs, I think it's called. Um, it's the one where I shoot two deer in the Kaimais with print. There's a really good example of that, of him actually getting a direct win from a deer that's like right there, and it's really pronounced. He's really keen winding. You can often tell, um, but you often get a little bit... It depends how optimistic you are, you know. Um, yeah, you often go, man, the dog looks really keen there. So you go up and then it's just fresh sign or something and it wants to start tracking. And you're like, man, he looked keen. But then when they're actually locked up on a deer, it's different and they're all bloody shaking and it's different. It's a big part of learning to read the dog. Um, yeah, so some more notes on this. It all depends on the direction of the wind and where you are. If the wind is really good, you can speed up. My next note is breaking it down. Um, so, and this is from, it, it, it's, breaking it down is sort of a term like, if you watch that video, How Deer Dogs Work or something, I put it on the Paul John Michaels YouTube channel um, recently. Breaking down three hunts, shooting three deer with print. Um, and I talk about that concept or idea of uh, taking a bite of the wind, going out when the wind's behind you. Sometimes you've got to hunt out with the wind behind you or out on an angle cutting across it so you can turn right around and cut, hunt back into the wind. Um, breaking it down is another concept like that. I actually wrote about this in an article I wrote in NZ Hunter magazine probably damn near 10 years ago now, 8 or 10 years ago. Um, and that's basically any time I'm hunting, I'm not looking at the whole area surrounding me as one big piece that I'm just constantly moving through. I'm always breaking it down into segments. 
So and and again, this is like the algorithm. You know, um, it might be if I leave camp and I'm going up a creek with the wind right up my ass, right behind me. Um, then I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to see a deer in the creek. All up the side here is just steep, heavy bush-clad area, so I might as well just boost up this first 20 minutes, get up to that first side creek and see what's happening. So that's uh, that's one segment. That's what I mean about breaking it down. So in my head now, as I leave camp, wind's up my ass. That's how I break down that first segment. And in my head, I'm just thinking, okay, wind's up my ass here. I'm going to boost up to that first side creek and see what the wind's doing there. And if that side creek's on a different angle, sort of running parallel with the main creek, there's a chance that the wind might be coming down there. And if I get up to that, and I'll just boost, talking about like how do you vary your speed when you're hunting, then I'll boost up to that side creek. Um... And if the wind's coming down that and I turn up that, then new segment, you know, and, and I can turn up there and if um, the wind's coming down there and I've got an indicating dog, then I can put the dog in front and I can go relative, as long as the dog's not acting like really keen indicating, then I can be pretty sure there's not anything in front of me there too. If I don't have a dog and I've got the wind in my face, I need to act like there's a deer around every single corner because I don't know. But if I've got a dog, I do. Um, so I'm always breaking it down. Now, let's say I go up that creek for half an hour and then it turns to waterfalls and crap. So I, And I start climbing a spur. And now I'm climbing a spur in a side wind with the wind, even let's say a 45. So it's pretty good. It's, it's coming at me front on but it's on like a 45-degree angle. Now I've got some decisions to make, talking about like adjusting my pace to what's happening. So this, again, would be a new segment. That's what I mean about breaking it down. So I'm not constantly a million percent on edge and running the same algorithm the whole time. It's like I was quite relaxed just marching up the creek with the wind up my ass, thinking about where I'm going and what I'm going to do and all that sort of stuff. Then with the wind in my face, coming up the creek, I'm watching the dog. There could be something here, but the dog's not paying much attention. Maybe a few fresh marks in the creek from the morning before, whatever. Maybe there's a slip somewhere that I might get a bit of a view on that the dog might not get a direct wind off, so I've got to be a bit careful at a couple of spots in case there's something right up the side that I can see or maybe able to see me, but the dog can't wind it. Now... That's another segment. Now I'm going up the spur and I'm assessing it as I'm going and as ever, as I get a little bit of height and I come up and start levels out and I've got a bit of a view around me but I'm on a in a in an angle wind, 45 degrees, coming sort of from my 2 o'clock. Um, now it's like, okay, because it's coming from a 45 the dog's sort of going to smell anything that's straight up wind. Um, but straight in front of me on the spur, I might be on a good spur with some fresh sign on it. Straight ahead, the dog can't indicate that. 
because the wind's on a 45. It's still a good wind, the deer can't smell me. And also, out in front of me and to my left, the dog can't indicate into that either. So, you know, now I've got a decision to make. Like, and how good's the spur? Am I seeing fresh sign? What is it? Is it open? Is it actually giving me some good opportunities? Is it open enough to see far enough? What's the ground conditions like? If it's like, man, this is a bit of an open ridge. Um, there's a bit of fresh sign around. It's a good area. The ground's quiet, if, and I'm looking at it going, man, if there's a deer on the spur, I'm going to have a really good chance here. But if I go too fast, I'm going to screw it up. Then I'll slow right down. And regularly, really regularly, uh, I'm hunting with a dog, like as carefully and as quietly and as effectively as I would be if, as if the dog wasn't there. But I've got the added advantage of having the dog as well. So as I'm hunting up that spur, I can even put the dog in a heel. So it's like hunting without a dog, exactly the same, except the dog's there indicating the dog's getting that cross section of that whole of the wind that's coming in from the angle. I'm looking out in front and down to the side. And 100% in a situation like that, um, sometimes when you're hunting in a situation like that, let's say the wind is caught almost straight on, then I can watch the dog and think and know if something's ahead, the dog's straight ahead on this ridge, the dog's going to let me know, so I don't have to stress out about that, and it actually takes away like about half or a third of the country that I need to worry about like using my eyes wise and I just need to worry about looking down the sides sometimes in that 45 degree angle type setup or a bit of a side wind um, depending on where I am like if it's flat or a ridge or whatever and what how I think the wind is working in that spot Sometimes you're in a bit of a situation where I'm like, man, I I know the dog's got like that whole area in front and out to my right covered off this wind because this wind is good and it's sort of drifting back and forth and the dog's getting a really good wind out of that whole like three quarters of what I'm moving into. But there's an awesome open face down to my left that the wind isn't coming out of. Uh, and if I'm going to spook a deer here, it's going to be out of there. So I can just spend all of my time concentrating on that one area. And, I, and I'm watching the dog as well, and the dog's got that whole area out that way covered. I know I'm not going to get a surprise out there because the wind is coming out of there, so the dog's going to let me know way before I get it up to something on that side and I just focus on this nice little face here and and we just move like that. So we're covering the whole area extremely effectively but I'm only having to do about quarter of the work um, that I would have to do if I didn't have the dog there. 
So it's easier for me, and I'm doing it way more effectively too because I can put all my attention on this one little area. So, and again, talking about like an algorithm, there's a million different scenarios and factors here. Um, Then, you know, if it was thick bush and it was real dry and crunchy, and I'm like, man, it, it's going to be hard today. Um, it, it, you know, it's going to be, you know, I'm trying to think of a scenario. Um, yeah, sometimes I'll, I will, for environmental factors, um, things like that, I'll more just, and it might even be just because that's what I feel like doing, um, I'll just relax and cruise and wait for the dog to indicate something. Um, or any, and, and it could be anything in between. It could be a million different reasons. Um, but I'm always adjusting speed, and it can be anywhere from basically, you know, um, the hunting I was doing a while ago. Uh, I talked. We talked about it in the podcast I did with Lawrence um I was hunting seeker in really open beach there was heaps of deer uh, uh the, it was quite quiet uh, the ground was damp and I was hunting in socks um but it was very open and basically no wind so and the wind was very back and forth it was difficult to actually get set up in a direction and just move with the wind in your face and have it all covered. I was damn near hunting the whole time because there were so many deer too. I was basically in full hunt mode the whole time because it was so open, you could see so far, you're coming over the brow, and yeah, the wind might be in your face for 30 seconds right now, but as I come over this brow, I can see 80 metres through the bush out to my right and what if there's a deer way down over there while the wind's in my face? You know, so I slowed right down um, and was hunting like that. But there's actually a very good argument to be made. And a lot of very, very good hunters that shoot a lot of deer will make it that, like, what's the biggest payoff? Like, because you can slow right down um, to try and, get see every deer and having said that I I didn't I should have shot a couple of deer that trip but I ended up shooting none um mainly my fault but um some hunters as they stuff that just speed up walk you know spook and shoot and um find a dumb one or um, just cover ground until the dog indicates something on a good direct wind and then go like who cares if you spook one there's heaps there, spook more. Um, and just keep going till you get a decent opportunity. And there's a really, really good argument to be made for that. Um, but there's an extremely good argument to be made for going really freaking slow and hunting really effectively too, especially when you're in a good area with lots of deer. So <laughs> I could just go round and round in circles on this, man, and anyone could argue it from loads of different directions. But... Um, uh, you massive, you, you vary your speed massively, um, 
and you know anywhere from like you say you say um is there a case for walking ridges and spurs and creeks etc at a near hiking pace to cover more ground in order to get onto a wind scent a hundred percent do it all the time um do it all the time one note i would say on ridges is it's a relatively well-known fact that when you're on a ridge top with the wind coming up and it feels like the wind's just coming straight up straight off that face below you and you're like oh man my dog will be any deer on that whole face my dog will be indicating it and i was walking on this ridge and just drop over the side on top of deer it can happen a hundred percent where your dog you can be on top of a ridge and the dog will take you down the side onto a deer it's a relatively well-known fact though that there's some funky stuff going on with the wind and uh, on the ridge top where it sort of swirls around on the top and it feels like the if you drop over the side, the wind is coming up that face and when you're on top of the ridge, the rid- it feels like it's coming up off that face but really the wind that's coming up off that face from a long way is sort of hitting and swirling and it's it's a again it's a relatively well-known fact that quite often when you're on top of a ridge your dog can't actually indicate what's over the side that well due to some weird swirly freaking thing that's going on there and that that wind right on top of the ridge there it's like it's sucking from the other side or something and but if you drop 20 meters down the face just down the side you're in a really good clean wind coming straight up that face. Um, yeah, again, that's a fairly well-known thing like that hunting along the top of a ridge, even when it feels like the wind's hitting you from that side, isn't necessarily, and there's actually a good argument to be made, that you're not actually hunting that face effectively at all. You've actually got to drop, and it's not far, just 20 or 50 metres down the side, and now you're in that proper wind that's coming up that face and your dog can take you down a long, quite a long way onto animals on that face. So that's just, yeah, one note that I've got here. Um, my final note is how slow I'm often moving in on a direct wind scent, you know, like when the dog's like locked up, <laughs> um, especially when everything's all calm and quiet and that and the dog's locked up, like, starts to get the quiver on he's just staring there's you know you can see print doing that in quite a few of my videos um man it's just like who dares to take another step you know because it, it can be really hard anyone that's done it too knows sometimes it can be relatively easy dogs indicating and you move in you're like man struggling to go quietly you're actually making a bit of noise and next thing there's a deer just like chewing on a bush in front of you you're like holy shit other times it's like you're barely moving you're in socks, you're going, and, and you can't sneak up on anything. It can be really difficult. Um, but, man, I'm going slow in that last bit generally, you know, really slow and careful. A lot of – when the dog starts, like, quivering and locking up and you're looking and you're looking and you can't see anything and you can't hear anything, that old saying, always trust the dog because if the dog's acting like something's right in front of you, it's generally because it is and just because you can't see it or hear it doesn't mean it's not there and generally when the dog's doing that and you can't see it yet be real careful taking that next step because it's everything's probably about to blow to bits but um 
But yeah, it's like just very, very slowly, like what, like really slow step at a time. A lot of just stopping and looking and waiting. I'm waiting for a deer to step out from behind a tree or to move or to hear a stick crack or something like that, but barely moving. Just re- once the dog's locked up, it's like this is it. Something's about to happen and I'm going really, really slow. Um, yeah. Dylan. Hi, Paul. Gus is six months old and into part four of the blueprint. We live rural, so we have quite a few rabbits and possums around and Gus is already keen on their scent. I do check him when he is on the wind and ground scent, but wondered what the best thing to do is. Is it a good idea to do non-target aversion training? But that's not until part nine. Don't want to become a problem down the track. Cheers, Dylan. Yeah, so my first note here is sequencing. And in the blueprint, we do all our work with deer skin and deer scent and target species first. And there's a really big reason for that. Um, Remember at the start of this Q&A, when I was talking about introducing a young dog to a deer just basically for the hell of it because I shot a deer so I've got the and I just brought the deer home and my pup's in the kennel and it's six months old should I introduce it to the deer seems like a good idea right but really like if you're following the blueprint there's basically there's very little to be gained by that you can do it if you do it all properly but you've got to do it properly. But uh, Dylan's asking, he's saying he's he's got a six-month-old dog that he's training on the blueprint. He's on part four, so he's probably not, he's almost at the deer, at the scent work, but not quite. And he's got lots of possums and rabbits around and he's wanting to do non-target species aversion training now. Is it a good idea to do it? Or should I wait until part... But the non-target species aversion training isn't until way later on in the blueprint. It's later on for a reason. And remember how at the start of this Q&A, if you're listening to this, jump to the start of this Q&A and listen to that first question that I answer um, for Matt about showing your dog a deer, I go into a lot of um, sort of upper level ideas on that. Um, I have quite the rant on that, on, on why the sequencing is so important and how easy it is to do even a very small thing either a little bit wrong and just knock a little edge off. You know, you get what I mean by that, eh? Like if you do everything perfect and you just get the perfect run in and you hit all your markers perfectly with a hunting dog, like, man, they just hit the ground running 
and they're so good, so fast, and you get them set up so well to a point that you can't even undo it if you try. But you make mistakes in the in the run up, and in the same way that you that and you can't undo them if you try. Best case scenario, making little mistakes as you just knock a little edge off and you never know how much you've knocked off because you never really know how good that it, and how early that yeah how good that dog would have been and how early it would have been that good had you not made those little mistakes you never know you know if you handle it all perfectly how good could that dog be if you make some mistakes or do things in the wrong order? You'll never actually know what effect that had. And in my experience, when you do everything perfectly and you have a good run, it is nuts how good they can be and how early they can be that good. And every time I do things out of order, or miss a couple of things out, I think, ah, I'll be right not doing that. I'll be sweet. Man, <laughs> you're not sweet. And and because I've done it correctly so many times, now when I miss a little something, and I think oh, I'll just deal with that on the fly later on, later on I'm just going, oh my God, what was I thinking? I know better. And I'm hitting that with Miko now. Um... I haven't done much scent work with Miko, um, not on the deer front anyway, and I haven't done much non-target species aversion training, but she has been in at heel for quite a few hunts and seen quite a few deer shot, and, I've, and, and she's indicating all of the deer that's print is indicating from in behind, and I thought she'll be sweet, she knows, you know. And she does know, but holy crap, it was mushy, man. Like it was just the difference between a dog that you've done all your non-target species aversion training properly with and that you've also done all your scent training properly with versus a dog that you haven't. And they're just all over the place showing interest in all these different things and having a little half-assed sniff of this and a half-assed sniff of that. And even like the way we do all the scent work and the blueprint, all the skin works, all the skin drags, the wind scent, I show you how rafts work and we do quite a bit of it and practice it quite a bit. You actually get a huge amount of bullshit out of the way. Like a, a huge amount. It makes a big difference, man. Big difference. And we do pretty much all of our scent work with deer skin. So when the dog, you know how your pup right now, you're saying my six-month-old pup um, is showing an interest in possums and rabbits and all of that stuff a lot. Um. When you don't do your aversion training first, you do your scent training with the target scents first. 
uh, and and it's introduced at a very specific time in the blueprint. It's introduced when we have enough dialogue with the dog to start to do that stuff in a structured way, like doing all the scent work in a structured way. The dog's getting pretty good on a long line. It's got a stop, go, come, bit of range, quite a few manners. It's got a really good dialogue, as in it knows what good dog means. It means keep doing what you're doing and do more of that, and it knows up. It knows what no means. It knows what pressure means. It means we're not. that's not what we want to do. We've got very nice, clean, clear lines. Um, but we haven't actually started... Um, like really, really targeted and heavy control work, and we haven't done tons of all the the finer points of non-communicative training yet. We haven't done our non-target species aversion training. So we've actually got quite a... We should have a a, a pup, middle-aged pup, that we've got a lot of dialogue with. It's got it's got quite a bit of handy stuff and control and structure, but it's still actually quite raw and outgoing. It's just like it, it, we can control it. It's getting quite tidy to walk around with, but it's still pretty loose and just wanting to get into everything. So when we first put that bit of desk in front of it, it there's no mucking around. There's no like wondering is this the scent that I'm supposed to be going after or am I allowed to or what? We were doing all of that hard out control stuff with the other stuff a while ago, so there's no questions in the dog's mind. Talking about sequencing and hitting markers perfectly and getting that perfect run in. We introduce it at that time for a lot of very specific reasons and, and right when we introduce it in the blueprint is right when... It, we've got just enough for the pup to, for us to be able to um, handle the pup and keep it all tidy, and and it just as much of that is around being able to control the pup so it doesn't just run off or start pulling on the lead when it hits scent, but it is just as much of it is so if the if the pup or the dog like veers off a, when it's tracking. We've got the dialogue in it to turn it back and talking about that dialogue of good dog means doing the right thing and up means, now that's not what we want to do here. We want to do this over here, good dog. And even just having those tools, a stop, go, and our turn command and having that, the, the it's set up that the dog knows to walk in front of us. So basically, if it goes to veer off, but we just, we turn back on to where we know we've set up that wind scent or that, that ground scent, the dog knows to veer back with us and we can actually guide the dog onto the scent and help it to make sure that it knows, now this is what I'm meant to be doing. I'm meant to, when I hit this, I'm meant to put my nose down on it and stay on it and get to the end and that's what we're here to do. So, and and we do that at a time when the dog, we, we haven't loaded too much shit onto the dog yet. 
as far as control and no, don't do this, don't do that, and you can we don't want to mix the dog up. Like straight line dog training, the deer dog training blueprint, a really good dog training system. Like I said, sequencing. It's so freaking important. It really, really is. And the blueprint is bang on on that. And and uh, like the way we do it in the blueprint works incredibly well, like insanely well. And it's aging really, really well too. Every time I do, I like test stuff. And think, man, I wonder if I did actually need to do that with the, the way I did exactly that much, the way I did it and stuff. And every time I try and like cut corners or do anything any different, I'm always like, re like reminded that's exactly why I do it that way. And it's, it's actually really important and it works like crazy well. It really does. And I know that's me talking about my own video series, but it does. Like, I, it surprises me sometimes. You know, it was six or seven years ago now. Well, Prince Seven. So it's a good few years ago now. Um, and, you know, with Miko, I'm mixing and matching a bit because we made the Palmiko dog guide and then I did some... Uh, bird dog stuff and now I'm adding some deer dog stuff so it's a little bit of a mix and match um, and there's been several times when I've just gone like man there was a lot that I didn't do there and and it's not a small deal you know <laughs> it, it and like you might think that doing that scent work is a fair bit of work but it's not as much work as like going round and round in circles in the supple jack and kiki and bullshit trying to work out what your dog's indicating for like ages, days. Um, it's really, really important to do all that stuff in the right order. And... Um, doing the fact that we do so we do all of our deer scent all of our target species and if you want to hunt pigs you can use some pig skin if you want to hunt tar you can use some tar skin um, and you don't have to use a piece of skin from every animal that you want to hunt but the point is is think about it this way. If you just do a whole bunch of non-target species aversion training, so you're just telling the teaching the dog, don't hunt this, don't hunt that, don't put your nose down before you've done your target species scent training, positive training, like this is what I do want you to hunt, then how can you expect the dog the very first if you've done it with possums and rabbits, ah, ah, get out of there. And then you put a bit of deer skin down. You've got a bit of damage control to do before the dog really just starts to hook in. But so that's why we do the deer, the, the target species specific stuff first. And 
the thing, and you're creating contrast and dialogue with the dog. Remember, I'm saying, I say this over and over. The dog has the IQ of a three-year-old human. Very, very basic. And it can take them quite a bit to understand some very, very basic ideas and systems. And some very small changes can make it way, way harder for them to understand and even mix it up to the point where they'll never quite understand it to the point that they could have had you done it perfectly. The dog's just got, you've just knocked the edge off something. The dog's just got a funny little, a, a second, a, a, an unnecessary um step of processing that it has to do before it can do it the right way it's got it has to run some a few more mental checks instead of just being able to do it just bang like that and happily and confidently you really can screw them up quite easily and when you do it all perfectly the difference between a dog that's been Gone that someone's mixed up and gone round and round in circles and screwed up the sequencing and then done heaps of work and got it going okay. The difference between that and a dog that's had everything done perfectly is night and day, you know. Um, an analogy, and I don't like analogies that much, but one analogy that I keep being reminded of is um, like when you're growing plants, um, to get a plant to grow like to its maximum full potential, like really big with heaps of fruit on it, um, everything has to be perfect. The seed has to be right. You have to get it in the right soil with the right light and the right temperature, water it the perfect amount and get that seedling started perfectly and don't transfer. Don't um, transplant it, you know, from its little seedling box too early when it's too delicate and not ready for it. But you can't let it get root bound and screwed up in that little seedling box either. You've got to transplant it at the perfect time into the next perfect spot, water it and feed it and keep it sheltered but with enough sun and everything just right so it can take off with that next stage perfectly. And then when it starts fruiting, you've got to, um, you know, switch up the fertilizer and get it, do it all, everything just right. And you can't just let a plant get all root bound out in its little seedling box for weeks and even a little bit and then plant it out into its next big perfect spot and expect it to be as good as the one that you did everything perfectly with. You've stunted it. It's not going to burst off and catch up and be just as good or better. It's you've screwed it up a little bit. And dog training, is it's exactly that. If you can get that perfect run in and hit all of these markers perfectly, and that's a huge part of why sequencing is so important, and like 
the order of non-target aversion training and starting your skin work and when and how you introduce a dog to a deer and scent and how you handle all of that is is extremely important. Really, really important. Um, you can diminish drive and make it harder to learn the other thing and backwards and forwards. And I've talked about this quite a bit. Um, on like when people don't train their dog enough so it doesn't have enough control and then they're trying to control the dog with too much pressure while it's trying to hunt its first deer and the dog might put its nose down and track off and pull out of range and they're growling the dog for going out of range but the dog thinks it's getting growled for tracking the deer and it's all messed up you know so there's a million ways you can screw it up and it it's, goes back to straight line dog training what I was talking about like as long as you stay on that straight line we've got parameters once you go off that that there's an unlimited amount of variables that and bullshit that we can deal with literally unlimited like it's impossible to talk about them all because how much shit can you come up with you know um so <clears throat> you get the point um You have to be extremely careful doing non-target aversion training, and I would say don't, don't do it. Do do all do everything in the right order. <clears throat> do all your scent work. I'm not saying it's impossible, and I'm hearing like the naysayer here going, "Oh, I did this and I did that." I'm not saying it's impossible. You could do your non-target aversion training. And then introduce deer skin later on and then teach the dog that, hey, this is actually okay. But you're way better off doing it the other way around. If you're in some extreme situation for whatever reason you had to do it that way, you could do it. But um, you're way better off telling the dog like, hey, this is what we do want to do and making sure that it knows that that's, that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to be doing this, do all the deer skin work first get the dog stoked, happy with that, doing it really well, mint, the dog knows it can do that. Then when you introduce possum and rabbit scent, if you're using that, for example, the dog straight away, the very first time you correct it and go, ah, get out of that, we don't want that, the dog already knows that you do want deer skin because you've done heaps of that. So the first time you correct that dog off that rabbit, it's going... Okay, sweet, we don't want that. It already knows you do want the deer and it'll switch back to the deer easier. Straight back. That you there's no impact there. But if you do aversion training before the target scent training, it's it works different. If the first scent that you work on with a dog, the first animal, the first scent it's trying to hunt, you're averting it away from it with pressure. Ah, get out of there. Or the e-collar or a long line. Not that we don't use e-collars in the blueprint, but if you, someone was to do that, if that happens, that's its first experience as aversion training on scent, on hunting. 
One way the dog can take that is it's not meant to hunt. That's the big problem. And now you've trained a dog. It's not meant to hunt. Don't put your nose down. You're not allowed to hunt stuff. So when we do it in the order we do it, we're teaching the dog to hunt. It's okay to hunt. We're showing what it wants to hunt. So then later on when we do the aversion training, the dog's going, okay, and now the way the dog sees it is, okay, I already know I'm meant to hunt because we've already done heaps of that. Then when you do the aversion training, the dog's just going, okay, I'm not meant to hunt, I'm, I'm not meant to hunt that. That's what it is. That's a better way of explaining it, actually. Train them that it's okay to hunt with the scent training and get it tidy and good. Then we can show them what, what they're not meant to hunt, what they're not meant to hunt. Um, do your scent work first. Do your aversion training after. It, and it can be huge, man. It can be huge. <laughs> And, like, I had it massively with Miko where I did aversion training. I did the Kiwi aversion training with Miko because I wanted to take her in the bush with me, even just for practical reasons. So I didn't have another dog that I couldn't take in the bush. So if I didn't have anyone to look after Miko, I could just take her and she could go in at heel and I could just take both dogs. And I could go hunting without having to always have a dog sitter, you know. So, and and it ended up turning into like a couple of years. And so Miko had Kiwi aversion training twice before I'd done any hunting training with her. So exactly what I just said, her first experiences with hunting was that if you hunt, you get electric shocks for it. And because I hadn't done hunting training first, that's their initial response to that. They don't necessarily think, oh, I get electric shocks when I hunt kiwis with people around. You know, and you're in the bush and you're on the long line or you're not on the long, but you're, you're doing stuff with people too. It's quite the event when you turn up at training. You know, there's other people there and they put the collar on, you give a pat and you stand around, you talk and then, right, let's go and you walk off into the bush and um, they've got all the kiwis set up and the dog gets shocked. And that happened twice with Miko. And then on her first hunts and even doing the bird, um, when I was training with birds, dead birds, so I was trying to get her to like... Um, retrieve cold birds and dead birds and bird dog training, uh, she was all sketched out because she had like PTSD. And any time we took, because when, then when you go and train or you're going to hunt, it's all a big thing, a big production like the Kiwi Aversion training. You go somewhere different, you do something else, you've got this gear, you know, I've got the dummies, I've got the bits and pieces and... Um, the dead bird and stuff like that. And she's clamming up. She's like, this, this is all feeling pretty freaking familiar. And as soon as I started introducing that cold game, uh, the dead birds, after doing Kiwi, and the Kiwi, she hadn't been Kiwi version trained for about a year. And I was setting up, because then I started doing blind retrieves with the dead duck. 
You think about Kiwi aversion training, they set up a dead Kiwi, and it's often not the big stuffed Kiwi. It's often just like a, a piece of dead Kiwi out of the freezer, and it's sort of stashed in the ferns somewhere. And then I was getting a dead duck and going out before her and and setting it up for to practice blind retrieves with a dead bird. And she was clamming up. She was clamming up. And it took way more work to get her going on cold game because of the aversion training that I'd done before that. Like way more work. And here's the big, big kicker on stuff like this, and it's huge, is once you've screwed something up like that, you've got your sequencing wrong, you can work your way through it in training. You can even um, get the ball rolling in hunting. Like with a lot of work and like, talking about you know the plant analogy or the difference between the dog that you get everything perfect with and how hard they'll go it's huge with retrieving because you get a dog just charging on retrieving and it's you know because difficult retrieves and going along and climbing through shit and swimming through water and all of the different stuff that they need to do to do that it it takes a lot of confidence and drive you, you just knock the edge off that a little bit and it really shows up, man. When you're trying to get a dog to like swim across a bloody river or, or um, across a shitty shit pond or um, in the wind and crap and trying to get it to go and it's like double guessing it because it's got this bullshit that it's thinking about in the back of its head. Like I was saying, it's it's got an extra process that it's, has to work through in its head before it just does it. There's something in the way. And it's a massive pain in the ass, man. Massive. And like what I was just getting to, the big kicker is you can go to all this work and training to get over that hurdle, that issue that you've created, you can put heaps of work in, in the field to work through it. Like and and the dog will start off way slower than it would have had you done it properly in the first place. And instead of like being like a coiled spring, and when you go, where you go on its first retrieve and just plowing in and charging across and grabbing it and bringing it back and being stoked, you're like, where you go? And they get up and go to the edge and look back. And you're like, where you go? And they sort of slowly get in and swim out and get to it. And then they don't know if they should grab it or not. And they piss around and muck around. And next thing they're getting swept around the corner of the river and you're following them down the bank and all that silly shit. It's the same as following a dog round in circles in the supplejack and crap because it's indicating a possum or something. Or it won't track properly 
because you screwed up something with your training and you've just wounded a deer and now you've got a dog that won't track it. You're pissing around with all this stuff like, where you go, good dog, come on, good dog, where you go, trying to get a dog going that is reluctant to go because you've screwed something up so it doesn't know if it should go or not. So it takes way more work and training. You're battling in the field and it's taking way, it's way more work than it should be. And even once you get through all of that and you finally get it going, one bad thing, one bullshit bad luck thing and you're all the way back to the start again and it can rear its ugly head any time. So this is why, you know, old school dog trainers, experienced dog trainers, guys that have done it over and over and over again. Like, and this is why so often people can't even be bothered explaining it. Because sometimes the way someone asks, and this is, none of the stuff is ever directed directly at the person that's asking the question, eh? This is always like a, overall talk about the topics that these questions bring up like there's so much to it that's why so many people will just be like they say oh should I do this before that and they're like nah don't do aversion training before you do that and they can't even be bothered explaining because there's so much to explain and they've been through it all so many times themselves and they know how bad it can be if you do it the wrong way around but you get the point. It's so important to do everything in the right order, man. And like depending on the degree at which you screw it up to, you know, like doing Kiwi aversion training twice before you do bird dog training, that's a big screw up. And then in that case, Miko got a shock off the electric fence trying to retrieve her first duck. So a lot of you know that story, but imagine how that went for me. <laughs> it took me a whole season. A whole season. Her first season should have been awesome, and it wasn't because of because of this exact thing, actually, because I did aversion training, not even, I did aversion training with the different species before I did my hunting training with the right species. I lost a whole year. And Miko's awesome now. She's going really, really well. But I'll never know how good she would have been had I done everything right. That was a massive, like, I got the... I got the um, seedling like root bound and almost dead and I brought it back from the brink of death and now it's growing again. But no matter how good, big that plant gets, I'll never know how big it could have been had I done everything perfectly. That's the problem. Um... And it's really, really important stuff, really, is sequencing. Um, we do the deer scent work first in the blueprint for a really big reason. 
the way we do it in the blueprint works incredibly well, like insanely well, and it's aging incredibly well. Like out of hundreds and hundreds of dogs in about seven years now, it works ridiculously well. There's a lot to it. There's a lot, like talking about hitting your markers in the right order. There's a lot of markers, and there's 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 about 124, I think, different videos in the Deer Dog Blueprint. 124, like title. This is what we're doing now, explaining it all, and doing it, and explaining it. And often there's there's multiple ideas in each video, but so there's there's hundreds of them. As far as each marker, like right now we're going to do this like this in this order because of this. These hundreds of all of those little, all the little transplanting the seedling from here to there and pour this on it now and do this this way and don't put this food on it now because that's the wrong pH or do this the other, like, <laughs> you know, it, it's such a complicated, dynamic situation it really is so um so back to dylan's question here we live rural so we've got quite a few possums and rabbits and gus is really keen on their scent um really quite important to try and avoid those those areas with all the possums in them, you know, and, and if there's that many rabbits, man, like the occasional rabbit here or there is okay in your training area, but you don't want tons, like go and shoot the bloody things. <laughs> Leave the dog behind. If there's that many possums and rabbits, get your 22 out and like bomb them up. Get rid of them. The occasional one's okay. Um... But you don't want to be, you know, like you see those areas, um, some areas just with heaps of rabbits, like it's nuts. You don't want to be tra training in an area like that because you're just shooting yourself in the foot, making your job way more difficult than it needs to be. And it's serious enough that, like, I would drive a decent little distance to go and do my training. If I had a rabbit, a, a paddock behind my house that was full of rabbits, first of all, I'd shoot the bloody rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> so there was only one or two kicking, you know, you never get rid of them all. I had that at um, at my mum's place. Uh, there's a few paddocks around there that I do a bit of stuff. It was stupid. There was so these, They're actually building back up again, but there was so many rabbits there. It was just crazy. You couldn't walk anywhere with a dog without bumping into a rabbit, so I just started bombing them up. Um. And same thing too with possums. Every time you walk outside at night, there's possums there. So I just shot them, man. Um, but if I had a paddock behind my house that had so many rabbits and it was crazy, I wouldn't. You you I wouldn't train there. You know, it's as simple as that. And and we get this question from time to time. They're like, oh, there's so many rabbits there. Then well, you can't. You shouldn't really be training there then. You know, um, it's you're just making your job too difficult, and then like doing a whole bunch of aversion training with the dog 
so you can train it in an area that's full of a bunch of non-target species is that shooting yourself in the foot too like if you're doing a bunch of aversion training before you finished your target training and the timing of everything that turned the blueprint is in very specific order again you know it really is and it's not that's not the only reason that it's in that order it's a whole bunch of other stuff too um <clears throat> yeah but any anyway, i think i've i think i've hammered that one out uh or grab a time code here <sighs> So you guys can click straight to the question that you want to listen to. Um, Jason, my German way here pointer is getting on and developing some health issues. I'm looking at getting another dog. I'm located in Australia and I'm looking to source an NZ bred pup to get started training. I'm looking at getting a heading dog. I just want to make sure I have a good chance of getting a really nice dog. I'm also looking at Australian-based options, smooth coat collies, kelpies and coolies. But the simple option is to just grab one from an established New Zealand breeder. Anyone anyone have a breeder to recommend? Thanks in advance. My first note on this is grabbing one from an established New Zealand breeder is not necessarily a simple option. There's no... There's no, there's no one that has like, there's no one that I know of that has like specifically bred. He, he, I actually shortened this question down a bit. There was quite a bit to it, which is good because it gives me plenty of context to give a good answer. But um, there's no one that I know that's specifically breeding purebred New Zealand heading dogs for indicating dogs that's breeding them from dogs that are well known to as indicating dogs and you know like Prince awesome Fly was awesome I got pups out of them and they're awesome but I, I but I think you could breed better pups than those two um Prince a bit plain eyed um Fly was awesome if you could if you could clone flies, that's about as good as they get. Very strong eyed, very biddable, fast maturing, small like she was awesome, really really good. Um, Miko's awesome, but heading dog Vizsla Cross, you've got just so much slower maturing more work takes way more time um fly was awesome when she was like 10 months old um <clears throat> but yeah so I, I don't i think i don't think you're quite looking at it the right way just to be frank like like i said like the way you've asked the question, it seems like, oh, the simple way is just to get one, like a perfect one from New Zealand. We don't have like perfect ones here. We don't have like one breeder that every single pup that they have is just perfect, you know, and there's no one that I could just direct you to and say, that's it, this guy here, he breeds these 
four dogs and every pup is like the perfect. It doesn't work like that, you know. Um, you still need to get the right one. And um, with heading dogs, and if you're going to go for working dogs, it's very, very important, like really, really important, I believe, for indicating dog, big game indicating dog, is to get a very strong-eyed one. Print's a little bit plain. Print's a little bit plain-eyed. And while, like, it's probably a little bit of a me being too fussy and stuff, but um, and also going from Fly. Fly was, like, in her prime, before I sort of screwed her up trying to bail with her and stuff, um, she was as good as it gets, man. She was nuts. She just was this tiny little dog that was just a weapon at finding stuff and she'd like ninja in all slow motion and lock up way back from everything and it was just crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy. Um, and print's very different to that. Print is quite plain-eyed. And it's funny because when I first... I saw the litter on Trade Me and I rung up about them and I said, what are the parents like? Are they, I need a strong-eyed dog. And the guy said, and rest in peace, by the way, the guy that bred print actually passed away a couple of few years ago. Awesome guy, awesome dogs. Um, but he he just didn't quite understand. He was a farmer, he was a shepherd, and he, he didn't quite understand exactly what what I was asking and why I was asking it exactly what I needed and why I needed it for an indicating dog because he was a farmer and most farmers and shepherds don't actually want the type of dog that I want for a deer dog they would I've talked about this before they would call it a thistle peeper the type of dog the type of strong white heading dog that makes a really good natural indicating dog is probably quite annoying for your average shepherd because they're real strong-eyed, they hang right back and go all sneaky and that's why they call them a thistle peeper because they put them out into a paddock around sheep and they just want to get the sheep out of the paddock. And they want a dog that just runs out quickly right around them and gets them moving and gets them out of the freaking paddock. Fly, and she started doing this when I, the first time I tried to get Fly to indicate a goat, uh, to bail a goat, we were walking up this creek, I was actually with the guy that I was working for, and he was like, I was actually hunting up on the face, and he called me up on the radio, he was bailing goats in the creek all morning, and he called me up on the radio, I was like, come down here, we'll get Fly to bail some goats. And I'm like, okay, he's my boss. So I'm basically just following his lead here. And um, next thing, yeah, we're going up the creek. There's heaps of goats in the spot. And um, come around the corner and there's some goats in the creek. And he's like, right, we'll get Fly to bail these. So we're like, where you go? And I've been teaching Fly to indicate for like a year now. And she was awesome at it, like unreal. And I'm like, where you go? And there's this goat. And she like went to run towards it and then like locked up and she's pointing it. 
from like 120 metres away. <laughs> the goat's way up in the corner of the creek and Prince just stand up, flies just stand there locked up on it. She probably would have been quite like that trying to get her started off as a um, sheepdog. She, you would have been like, where you go? And she, she would have run out in the paddock right out around the sheep and, and hung like 50 metres off them and been all creeping up and sneaking up, hiding behind the thistles, poking her head out and very, very slowly. Really strong eye. They eye the sheep. That's the point. Real, and they call it weak pull. So the dog, the 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 dog walks up to the sheep really slowly and gets them moving real slowly. They they tend to use, and I'm no expert on that. I might get some of this terminology a little bit wrong, but the the principles and what I'm trying to explain is correct. Um. They tend to like those strong-eyed, weak-pull, slow dogs like Fly at lambing time and things like that when they when they want to do things slowly, you know, and nice and calm and not um, chase sheep through the bloody fences and, um, you know, break the mum up from the lambs and stuff like that. Uh, but there's a happy medium there. And um, I remember when I rung up to ask about what the parents are like and he kept talking about Prince Dad, the sire of the litter, and I said, oh, is, is the, are the parents, are the pup's parents strong-eyed? And he said, oh, his dad will do everything. His dad will do everything. And I was like, what? And he was just raving about how good the, the prince's dad was. And I bet your prince is quite like his dad. In that, um, speaking of the devil, <laughs> prince right here, because I keep saying his name. Hey? Eh? Um, God boy. And prince will do everything because when he gets riding close to a deer, Real close, you'll start slowing down and locking up. But we need to be real freaking close. Like, real close. And when the deer's a little bit further away, which sometimes in the bush is only 50-odd metres, when you actually need to be going quite freaking slow, Prince actually quite plain-eyed, and he's just moving in quite fast, too fast sometimes. Which for sheep would be uh, slow, Probably quite a nice happy medium, but then then when things start happening and he gets real close, he'll slow down. So to a shepherd. But anyway, uh, so he said, oh, they do everything, they do everything. And I said, I need it real strong-eyed. And he's like, yeah, no, they'll do that, they'll do that. Um, and I took print back to that farm about a year later just to say day and show him print and see how he's getting on and how his dogs were. And I either got the... When I first rung up and said, I need strong eye, and he was like, yeah, they'll do that, they'll do that. And then I said to him, he was like, oh, that's that's um, Prince mum there. And I said, um, oh, is she... 
like strong eyed? He was like, nah, she's very plain. She's very plain eyed. <laughs> so either he was like, tr- uh, it was almost a bit like he was maybe just trying to sell me a pup. Like, yeah, oh, I'm telling you, they'll do everything you need to do. Cause, and I was really focused on trying to work out like, hey, are these strong eyed? I need a strong eyed pup. I need re- and real strong eyed. This is the idea I'm trying to get across here. For indicating, you need crazy strong eye. And you get them. You get them. And if you talk to the right guy in the right way, they'll tell you. And you almost need to see the dog doing it. Um, And it's so strong that most shepherds won't even, it'll be a pain in the ass. Because they'll try to send them out in the paddock and they'll go right around and hang right off and like barely get everything moving. You know, and then you send a plain-eyed dog out there, like a faster plane, and they'll go straight around and straight up, walk straight up to the sheep. Um, and just get them moving. Strong pull. There's different types of dogs. Um, Fly was very strong-eyed real strong eyed and she'd start slowing right down way back off the animal that was just a natural thing that she had and if she heard anything or saw anything she'd just lock up I've seen other heading dogs that are like that um, often those types of dogs are harder to get going bailing because their natural tendency is to stop and hang back and point and go slow Often the type of dog that is a real natural fast starter for bailing, they'll just run out and run right up to stuff and bite it on the ass and just the type of dog that would be like chasing sheep through fences and causing all sorts of havoc, like you'd have to put a lot of control on them before you could let them into a paddock with sheep and not have sheep going through fences and shit. That's the type of dog that is going to more of a handful indicating and they're going to smell something and like, let's get in there and let's do something here. And you, and it's more work slowing them down and getting the control on them and teaching them to slow down and point. Whereas a super strong-eyed dog, the type of dog that if you just put out in the paddock with no training, it's just going to stand way back and just like look at them and as you build confidence in them, and as they start to work, they'll be doing a lot of eyeing and a lot of standing back and staring at them and low body position and sneaking around and stuff. That's what the shepherd calls a thistle peeper. Um, I heard a guy say once that he went to sales, like sheepdog sales, and they put the dogs in s- some yards with some sheep so the people buying the dogs can see what that dog is like with the sheep. And he said, um, some dogs, they put an untrained dog in the yard with some sheep, and the dog just runs up and grabs the sheep by the throat. And some guys are like, yep, put a bit in on that dog. Because they just know, they just need a dog that's going to run out and get stuff moving, and they can put an e-collar on it and stop it from biting a sheep but they know that dog's going to run out and get stuff moving. But that dog's going to be, that that would be like 
almost no eye. Very no, it's not eyeing it at all. It's just running in and grabbing it by the throat. Extremely plain-eyed, extremely strong pull. Um, for heading dogs, you want very strong-eyed, weak pull. The sort of dog that would just stand back and point. Um, and print is is quite plain-eyed. Strong pull. He just wants to get in there. Not real bad. He doesn't want to run in there, and he is sort of a bit light on his feet, but he's just a bit quick, and that's just him. Te trying to teach him not to do that is like trying to teach a dog not to yawn or not to wag its tail, you know. It's just... Um, uh, yeah. So that that's just my rant on that, and... If you're going to get a heading dog, you need, I would lean on the smaller side and you need real strong eye. And sometimes you'll tell a farmer like, hey, I need, I'm looking for a strong eyed dog. And they'll be like, yeah, oh, nah, he'll be pretty strong eyed. You know, he'll do it all. Um, and that's what I mean by Prince owner saying that his Prince dad will do everything, meaning, and it makes sense to me too, because Prince quite like that. He's quite in the middle. He'll he'll want to run and chase stuff like you've you know he he you can see in him every now and again you've got to give him a hiss or tell him to not so much on deer but just I can just tell he's always been that sort of dog um he does have the eye when he gets in real close but nowhere near as much as some other dogs you know he just sort of gets his his head drops down a bit and he just sort of gets a little bit of a lightens up on his feet a bit but he's still moving in pretty quick um and it's only when it's like right in front of him and he knows it's about to burst out of the cover like i'm talking man when print starts locking right up you're about to step on it it's like it's like seven or eight meters away you know and i've got a couple of videos of him doing that um yeah so that's what I, that's why when you say um what did he say the simple option is just to grab one from an established new zealand breeder no it ain't <laughs> Because I wish it was that simple over here, but it's not that simple. Um, and they are actually getting more and more people um, aware of indicating dogs and and um, it, that know that heading dogs are a good option here in New Zealand or people that have seen one or had one or trained one. Um, that Because I've been talking about this for quite a while now. Um and, you know, more and more I'm talking to someone that's like, oh, my mate's bloody got this tiny little heading dog that's like crazy strong-eyed and um, he's using him for deer now. Or, or um, like Miko's litter, she's a heading dog, Vizsla Cross, and Miko's mum was, was a very strong point, slow sneak, sort of a dog like he said Miko's mum when hunting over her she's almost too slow like she starts 
creeping and going or slow and ninjury on deer like too far out and you're sort of like behind her going like it's still 120 meters away and she's going or you know can't remember exactly what he said on that but he definitely said sometimes she's too slow like annoyingly slow um so as far as Vizslas go, apparently Miko's mum leant very hard on the strong eye, weak pull type of thing, and he said that her dad, the heading dog, was a small, very strong-eyed heading dog, like really, really strong-eyed. And Miko is very strong-eyed, like um, even on cows and pheasants, and um, I, I haven't really had her on deer properly yet. But I know once she clicks, I've seen enough dogs to know, like once she gets going on deer and once she clicks on them, I think she's going to be very strong-eyed, more like fly. Um, you know, when Miko's showing interest in something, um, she had a thing, she was quite obsessed with the cows in the, in the paddock at home. I've got her buttoned right off that now, but... Um, if you let her do it, let her like eye the cows and start sneaking. She's going into this full locked up sneak, like point a hundred meters away, do, sort of doing what Fly did on that goat in the creek. When you're trying to send her off, like where you go, and she goes to go, runs for five meters, and then stops and locks up on it, like a hundred meters away. Um, that's sort of what what Fly was like. I think Miko's going to be like that, which that's what you want. Um, and having said all of that though, after all of that ramble, you guys know how good print is. He's still like a weapon, but for me personally, once you've had that dog that's got that crazy sneak, um, man, that's the ultimate. There's no because uh, there is that thing, oh, you don't need the sneak, you don't need it, oh, I've had dogs that do this, and oh, I've had dogs that do that, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so have I, I've got one. Print's probably one of the most extreme examples of that. It's very nice to hunt over, very easy to control, incredibly good at it, shoot plenty of deer over it, pretty much stuff none of them up. Um, and he's fairly plain. He just indicates takes you in he'll slow down and lock up when you get real close but it's really just i've just taught him to stay close he's really well trained easy to handle and he just indicates the deer um but he just does it's just not as nice to hunt over he takes a bit more handling sometimes he's making a bit of noise and i'm thinking and i sort of have to sprint, you know get him in behind uh, get talent, you know, use a hand signal to get him to sit down. When I'm looking at it, and what he's telling me is the deer is like right here, and it's dead calm. And I know that's what it comes down to is I know. Basically, I know more than him about what he's trying to do, so I have to guide him a little bit. So I'm like, Prince, slow down. I'm constantly telling him. Slow down, sit there, get in behind. It's like what he's telling me is telling me that the deer is right there and that he should be going slower than what he is. And that's just him. It's like, like I said, it's like that's like a dog wagging its tail. It's he's plain eyed. He doesn't know how to do it different to that. That's how he's geared. Um, 
Whereas Fly, you'd look up at her and she'd be locked. She's telling you what to do the whole time. She's slowing down and ninjuring at the point, particularly before I bailed with her and stuff. She used to be a bit more like what, a lot more like what Miko's, um, the guy that bred Miko, he said, if anything, Miko's mum goes too slow. So he's looking at the dog, knowing, oh, the deer's probably 80 metres away, and there's actually a bit of a breeze today, and I'm going, I can go pretty quietly through here, and I know it's still probably over that next brow. I just want to walk over there and then slow down, but the dog's already like ninjuring. So you're almost telling the dog to speed up more than you're telling it to slow down versus the other way around. You're not fighting it. That's the difference. That's the big difference. And, um, yeah, it's 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 two very different things. And anyone that's, that's hunted over a dog that's real sneaky and just real nice will know versus one that's a little bit plainer and less style. Um, it's once you've had that style and that sneak and point and stuff, it's you can't go back. You're just like, and, and that's what it's like hunting over print, to be honest. And he's seven now, so he's pretty much doing everything he's going to do. And um, that's why I'm quite interested to get Miko going. Um, because, yeah, sometimes, still with, he's seven and he still does stuff. I'm like, print. You know, like, Jesus, mate. And I sort of laugh about it because, yeah, he, he just is what he is, you know. And um, he's incredibly good. But, I don't want to say he could be better, but he could be different. You know, he could have more style and more sneak, but he's just that's just not in him. Um, <clears throat> so, um, Jason, even if you are going to get a heading dog from New Zealand, you're still going to have to like really work for it and work it out and sort it out. And um, yeah, I think like a smooth coat collie or a Cooley from Australia is a good option, but like I say, I at least want to have that rant because a lot of people would look at Print and go, man, I'd go a plain-eyed heading dog like Print because he's, he is extremely good and it's actually difficult to get a dog that's better. Um, Very easy to train, very nice to hunt over, extremely practical, but like I just, I just have to be open and honest about what I'm thinking and what I want to do, you know, and and that's just how the way I look at print. Um, he's awesome, but I, if I would was to do it again, I'd be even more careful to get a really strong eyed, really strong eyed. Um, and print's not quite as strong eyed as what I would have preferred, you know. Um, you want that sneak, man. It's it's just nicer. So that's yeah, that's my rant on that. Um, New Zealand heading dogs are very good, but I'm in no illusion that like there's a lot of sheep and cows in Australia too, and I'm sure those guys over there have some really strong-eyed dogs and really good dogs and and that. And like when I'm choosing my dogs here. Um, if I was to get 
if I was to start another big game indicating dog in New Zealand tomorrow and I was going to go a heading dog, which if I wasn't going to do any deer work, any, excuse me, if I wasn't going to do any bird work as well, I would probably just go for another purebred heading dog because they're so, like, as you say, the premise is good here. Like I, he says, I just want a good chance to, of getting a really nice dog and, and heading dogs for their temperament, work ethic, everything uh, and bit ability trainability fast maturing all of that they're freaking outstanding and and uh yeah they really are and um i would just start looking on i don't know off actually i do know of one or two breeders now just people I've done one-on-ones with and things that they're like, oh, yeah, I got this dog from here and I've got his phone number and he has a litter every now and again. But they might only have a litter once every two or three years or something. So what I tend to do is just start watching Trade Me and some bloody nice litter. I got print off Trade Me just by watching Trade Me. And um, like I say, and exactly what excuse me what happened with print like you can lose a bit in translation and you're just talking to a person over the phone and you're taking the person who's trying to sell the pup's word for it and all that sort of stuff and everyone there's that old thing like um you know and that's why i say this about print is there's that old saying like everyone's dog's the best dog ever people say that about people's kids too everyone's kid's the best kid ever and he's most amazing at this and that and other and um it's very easy to have rose-tinted glasses like that. Um, and I try to really see through that and just say tell everything for exactly how it is. Um, and, you know, that's the thing with print, like saying, oh, he's not strong-eyed enough and this, that, and the other. Like that, I can't, <laughs> I can't say enough how nitpicking that is because he's about as good as a deer dog gets. And this is extremely fine tooth cone stuff um but the only that's and it's pretty it is it's the only way you could make print better as if he was everything he is but he was stronger eyed and he just had that natural like i can smell the deer so slow down further out that's all it is um so that that's the only thing i would that you really want to lean into, you know, and I've always said that. Um, and and that's another one of those ideas that just ages very well. Like the more times I've said that, the more time that goes by, the more experience I get, the more things I see, the more I'm just like, you really, really do want that very strong-eyed dog. And there's plenty of them out there. There is. Um, uh yeah. So I would look into that and just, you just like, I just start watching Trade Me. It'll say in the ad whether they're strong eyed or not. And you can ask the, um, you can ask the person who's bred them. The other thing is, is like, it's not a directly linear thing, as in like, if you've got a pet one dog. The bitch is very strong-eyed. The the dog, the sire is very strong-eyed, and you put the two together, that it, all the pups are going to be this perfect 
linear spread of being exactly as strong-eyed as the mother and father, you can get a relative, like a medium to plain-eyed dog out of two quite strong-eyed dogs, I believe anyway. I've at least heard shepherds say that. Oh, just because you don't know what how strong strong the pups are going to be until... But I do believe that if you... Just like anything, that's how you get pointers, right? Is If you take a very strong-eyed bitch and a very strong-eyed dog and breed them together, you generally get stronger-eyed pups. But some of those pups in that litter may be stronger than others. You know? And, and so there's lines... But um, <laughs> I could go on, and this is why I don't, like and the, a big part of part one is all about how to choose a pup. Um, but this is why, and, and I talk about it a lot, and I show you how I choose print and a whole bunch of stuff on different breeds and choosing the right individual dog within the breed and all that. There's heaps of that in part one of the Deer Dog Training Blueprint. But, man, breeding and choosing the right dog and the right pup in that, there's a lot to it, eh? It's like, it's just as big a subject as training the bloody things. And I'm a dog trainer, not a dog breeder, but... um. I also, yeah, I have pretty good luck at choosing dogs and getting pretty bloody close to what I want to get to. And I generally have a pretty good idea of what I'm getting when I, by the time I've chosen it, you know. Um, the only thing with printers, like I say, I wish he was a little bit stronger eyed, but yeah. So I just start looking at Trade Me. And quite a few heading dog litters come up on Trade Me. There's a couple of Facebook pages and bits and pieces around too. And I just start making phone calls, ringing up, talking to people that have the litters, going and looking at the litters, looking at the parents, a lot of talking and looking and thinking about it. And I just choose a pup based on sort of everything I know. And... um. Yeah, a lot goes into it, but, you know, and that's why I like the working dogs because I just find someone that I can tell has their head screwed on, they're a good person, they're smart, you can tell they're a good farmer, you just talk, you know, where are you farming? Like, you don't manage a big station somewhere for seven years if you're an idiot and don't know what you're doing. Like, you don't, you, they won't. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's one thing when you're dealing with farmers. Like, you literally can't do the job if you're an idiot and you don't know what you're doing. Like, the place will just fall apart and you'll get fired, you know? So if it's all of those things. I'm looking for someone that's, like, experienced farmer, farm owner being, or farm manager that's been somewhere for a while. Um, I'm looking at the person first. And then obviously the dog's got to be what I'm looking for, but then I've got to hit it off with the person on the phone and asking them about the dogs and they're talking to me and telling me um, what the dogs are like and what the parents are like and all of that. Um, I've got to like the look of the dog, like um, cosmetically, markings and everything. Um, that's debatable, but for me I do like actually 
I've got to hit it off like when I look at the dog too and think, man, that's a cool-looking pup. And it's got all the right stuff that it's theoretically got all the right stuff that I'm looking for. It's parents are nice dogs and good working dogs. And um, like, you know, as soon as I started talking to the guy that bred print, um, he knew about the breeding and he'd, he'd had the mother for ages and, or, you know, he'd had that line for quite a while and he told me the whole story about them and what they're like and what he likes about them and what he likes about dogs and doesn't like about dogs. Like, you've got to... You've, yeah. Like I say, I want to hit it off with the person and basically ascertain that they were on the same page on a lot of stuff. They know a lot about dogs and they're not a Muppet. As soon as... And I've had it. And I've rung someone up. And another big thing is when it, that's why I always want to go and meet the person in person, preferably at their house or on their farm or wherever they are, and meet them and see their setup and all of that. Because I've had that when I've turned when I've talked to the person on the phone and it's like, hey, g'day, mate, how's it going? And you're asking them queer and they're sort of cutting you off and they're a bit funny and you, you say, Oh, did the dogs do you know, are they strong-eyed? He's, ah, you don't want bloody strong You know, instead of saying, yeah, they are, he's, like, trying to tell me why you don't want too strong-eyed and this, that. and we're just not hitting it off. It's not meshing. And then I turn up, and, like, the place is sort of a freaking mess, you know, and the pups don't look that good. They're not in that good of conditions. The kennels are all crappy, you know. It's just stuff like that, like, um... Yeah, and I've gone to, and then the the parents are there, and they're like barking and whining in the kennel, and it's just, it just, it just, I just get put off. Like everything has to be right, and um, with Prince Litter, everything was right, man. He was a real cool guy, hit it off. Everything he said made sense. He obviously knew a lot about dogs. He obviously really liked his dogs. He'd bred the litter for himself. When I when I went and looked at the whole setup, everything was awesome. He let the parents out. They were nice dogs, just walking around, just normal. Went and saw the pups. They all seemed cool. They were nice. They looked good. Everything, nothing gave me the, nothing, um, gave me a weird gut feeling or anything everything felt good and I was like I don't know how I'm, and I looked at other litters that there was always a couple of little things that I didn't quite like and that with Prince litter it was like man this is I don't know how I get any better than this that's really what it's got to be get like for me it's like I, I don't know how I'm going to find a better pup than that Um, and again like uh, the only thing I'd change in print is that he's a he could be a little bit stronger eyed. Um, with Miko for what I've ended up using her for, like um, on birds and now getting into a bit of deer deer work with her, nothing I'd change about her. She's perfect. The fact I've got print as well, um, she's bang on, man. She's she's unreal. Um, 
been taken longer and more work, I knew I knew exactly that that's exactly what was going to happen with her. Even down to the individual pup that I chose, like with Print getting the quiet one, he was very, very easy and, and matured very fast. Miko was the complete opposite of how I show you how to choose a pup in the blueprint and talking about like how something ages, how it's panned out over time. It's exactly how it panned out with Miko. She was um, way more forward, confident, slower maturing, took longer to get the off-leash control, all of that stuff. Um, just a very different dog. But Miko's got the real strong eye and sneak and point and stuff. Um, so that's it, man. I'd, I'd just start looking for litters. I don't know. Australia must have our your version of our trade me, like an eBay or a Craigslist or whatever it is. Um, and 100% there's some shit out there and there's some uh, people that you could argue that aren't the best breeders and don't necessarily know what they're talking about. They're breeding for different reasons. They don't know what a good hunting dog is. They think they do and they'll tell you that they do when they actually don't. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot going on, man. Um, and like I say, I just make a lot of phone calls, talk to people. Um, and I, uh, everything just has to line up for me. Yeah, but. Yeah, like I often say, I think you get the point, but. um. Yeah, just because you get a dog from New Zealand doesn't mean it's going to be straightforward and like you can get, you know. And and I don't know of any breeder that I can just point you straight to. Um, if I was in Australia, I've watched coolies online and like looked right into them. I'd be looking for a really strong-eyed coolie. Um, you talk about smooth coat collies, which is pretty much a heading dog. Um, if they're the black and white ones, not the not the not the lassie collies, um, but you want that strong eye, real strong eye. Um, I'd I'd be looking at getting a strong, finding a strong eyed coolie. I don't know if they, I'm guessing they probably do if they do talk about the whole strong eyed thing. But um, anyway. I think I've hammered that one out. Time code. Time codes in the description on YouTube. Uh, Emily. Hi, Paul. We're training our 10-month-old GSP Ranger using both the Blueprint and the Palmico Dog Guide. Hunting season is very short here in British Columbia, Canada, and Ranger is a house pet for most of the year. It's been working great, even though we are taking more time to go through the blueprint. Do you have any thoughts on the best way to achieve the blueprint goals with a dog that also enjoys extra freedom that the Palmico Dog Guide allows? Um, so for people that don't know, the, Pal the Deer Dog Training Blueprint is our deer dog training series, hunting dog training series, big game indicating dog training video series. 
The Palmico Dog Guide is my general dog training series where I just put all of my training principles and techniques into a video series for people that aren't training a hunting dog, they're just training a pet. And we have set it up so you can get the Dare Dog Training Blueprint and the Palmico Dog Guide together for anyone that may want to do that. And there was people that wanted to do that straight. As soon as the Palmico Dog Guide was coming out, people that had the blueprint were like, I want to get the Palmico Dog Guide as well, so we set that up. And Emily's asking, like, how do... And, and there's actually a whole video on the website, on the Blueprint website, about how the Palmico and Blueprint work together and heaps on that. But she's saying, how do I implement... What was her exact words? Uh, do you have any thoughts on the best way to achieve the Blueprint goals with the dog that also enjoys the extra freedom that Palmico allows. So my first note on this, I've got a few notes on this actually, bit of a more of a written spiel than a note. So the Palmico dog guide doesn't allow much extra freedom really, and it actually doesn't. It does a little bit, but not much. Um, the main difference and the main reason people add the Palmico Dog Guide to the Blueprint is because the Palmico series has crating inside right from a pup and the Blueprint is kenneling outside from a pup. That's probably, if you've got the Blueprint and you want to add Palmico on you, that's the main reason people would do that is because the Blueprint is kenneling outside and if someone like messages me and say, hey, uh, I live in freaking somewhere crazy cold or f for whatever reason they're like my partner really wants the dog to be inside or I want the dog to be inside or for what, any reason someone's like hey I want to follow the blueprint but I'm 100% I'm going to crate the dog inside I say sweet that's all in the Palmico dog guide like if you want it, want me to tell you how to do it or you want a, a good structured system to follow for crating the pup inside like right from day one that's all and it is a handy tool for a lots of reasons for a lot of people and there's nothing wrong with doing it if you do it all the right way that's the main reason why people would add the palmico dog guide to the blueprint is to crate inside right from a pup and there's not actually that much extra freedom in there like you could just crate the pup inside as per the Palmico dog guide and follow everything that's in the blueprint and your pup's not really getting much freedom there's maybe a little bit more freedom and, and there is actually there's a little bit more freedom inside inside earlier on in the Palmico dog guide but it's very structured and careful and we go over all of the do's and don'ts in there so we do start that for one the crate pups crated inside and it's inside like while we're inside with us you know in the same room and stuff it's not like we lock it up on its own down the far end of the house we actually it can be in the lounge in the crate while we're doing stuff and we actually start letting the pup out of the crate inside a little bit earlier on but only while we're like supervising it and while it's not going to be doing anything crazy and we start off like when we're basically one-on-one -on -one with the pup inside. And if everything's quiet and chill and the pup's going to like just chill, 
then that's sweet. And we can spend a bit of time engaging with the pup and mucking around with it, but well within reason, you know, and we don't want that to get too crazy. So, um, yeah, going back to like what I said, the Palmico dog guy doesn't actually allow that much extra free freedom. The main reason is crating inside and maybe a little bit of extra freedom in the side earlier on, but um, it's not that much. But to answer the question, to do it all properly and really get the blueprint result, follow the blueprint to a T and only add the crating inside from the Palmico dog guy, maybe a little bit of extra freedom inside, the other thing the Palmico Dog Guide has is um, walking on a short leash much earlier than the blueprint. So for people in town um, that for whatever reason or someone else in the family might not want to do all of the structured long line stuff but can still get the dog out for a walk on a short leash, that's all in there too from a younger age, walking on a short leash. Um, so... You can maybe do a bit of that stuff, but keep it all very structured, like lean hard on the side of caution and structure. Um, and just use it for that. Crating inside's fine if that's what you want to do. A very careful with that inside time out of the crate with the pup because you don't want to mess up. The most important part with that is um, the way you're pup or dog prioritizes activities and if that pup spends too much time out of the crate jumping all over everyone and playing with kids and all you know like too much too much fun basically then when you put the long line on it and start running stop drills it's going it's going to diminish away from that um yeah you mess up the way that your dog prioritizes activities too much fun and freedom too early on makes training a low priority activity and it's very difficult to get engagement and focus and control out of a pup or dog that spends a lot of time like running around like an idiot. It really is. Um, and the big catch to that, I've said this before a lot, it's basically the freedom and responsibility principle. Um, and a bit counterintuitive if you're like, oh, but I want my pup to have lots of freedom and fun and like play and I think it's mean to restrict the dog and lock it up um, the thing is is if you give them too much fun and freedom early on and you screw up that the way your dog prioritizes activities you make training a low priority activity it's very difficult to train then and you can't get that control and structure out of the dog, then as the dog gets older, you run into serious issues. You don't have the control. You can end up in the situation where you can't take the dog hunting. You can't let the dog off the leash at the park because you don't have control because you haven't been able to train it because its priorities were all screwed up. And shit can get pretty squirrely, and the dog can end up losing a lot of freedom and respect a lot of fun and freedom for its whole life 
because you didn't have the structure early on to train the dog so it can just be, uh, you know, an integral part of your life that can go anywhere, go around to your mates, go to the park, let it off the beach. So I basically live the life that Print and Miko live now where they're off the long line all the time. They just cruise around the house all, all day take them to the beach, the park, off the long line, rides on the bike, all of that. But then when I want to go, ah, sit, they sit. Here, print, and they'll come. Take them hunting. Take Miko hunting. Do whatever I want. Because of that, they have really good lives with lots of freedom now because of that structure early on. you got to sacrifice a little bit early on so they can have it all later. If you try to give them too much early on, they lose way more later. So that's the big sort of counterintuitive swing there. Um, damn it, I forgot the time code on that one. Uh, did I? No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> uh, typing the doing these time codes like this as I do this um, saves like so much work later on. Um, it, it'll take out. I basically got to go scrub through the whole thing and listen to it, and find the exact point and muck around. If I type them down now, it takes me about five minutes later on when I'm editing and posting and stuff. Um, another one from Emily. Uh, also, here in BC, dogs are legally required to be on a leash to hunt big game, so we plan to keep them on the long line to hunt. Do you have any thoughts or recommendations on this? You mentioned in a previous Q&A that sometimes dogs hunt better when they can range a little further out. Would you recommend that we use a line longer than five metres than the five metre one we are using? Um, definitely hunting on the long line is fine and really effective. Um, I still hunt my dogs on the long line a lot, um, even though I don't have to. It's just easier and if you're not like a full-time professional hunter that's just hunting the whole time, it's honestly easier. And um, even full-time professional guys that hunt the whole time, actually, so a lot of them use long lines while they're hunting a lot more than a lot of them will even tell you. But um, I'm not saying all of them do, and plenty never use a long line on their dogs, but uh, I didn't when I was hunting full-time. But since I haven't been hunting full-time, I've been using long lines more and more, even when I don't have to legally you know um but so it's totally fine hunting on a long line it can be really effective it can be super easy you can just you can stand on the long line without saying anything to so you don't even have to wait for your dog to look back you can it's once the once you are really good at using the long line and the dog is really really good on the long line it's totally fine and in a lot of ways it's actually easier than hunting without a long line no matter how well your dog's trained. Um, <clears throat> we're talking, you're not holding the long line, the dog's just dragging it. Light little bit of string trailing behind it. And um, a lot of really, really good hunters, and like I said, even full-time professional guys hunt with their dog dragging the long line the whole time. It's actually a, a, a well-kept secret amongst some people, I reckon. Well, I know, actually. But um, so there's nothing wrong with hunting on the long line. It can be really effective. It can be better than hunting without a long line. 
Um, the dog can hunt, still hunt really well in close on the long line. Um, so I have spoken about sometimes the dogs can hunt a little bit further out. I would say that's more of an exception than, you know, like it's more often in more scenarios with more dogs that you're better off with them closer than it is that you're better off with them further out. That's definitely the dog being better off ranging further out is more the exception than the rule for sure and dogs can still hunt really effective and really well and close um five meters is a little bit short on the long line particularly for training um what i recommend i use a long a bit a line a bit longer than the five meter one we use for training. If you're using a five meter one for training and that's working okay, the five meter one will be fine for hunting. You could use a little bit longer. Uh, one thing I always say about a long line and when I'm setting one up to start training or hunting or something, I can always cut a meter off it or two meters. Like once I start, um, I can't add to it once I've cut it off. So, <clears throat> and uh, five meters is a bit short. For me, on a long line, I tend to like seven meters for most things. Having said that, though, for hunting, I'll often shorten it up a little bit um, just so it's a little bit less weight for the dog to drag, a little bit be better for tangles and stuff like that. But um, seven meters is a really good starting point for me for most of my long lines uh, for hunting and training. And that's my last, our last question. So thanks everyone for listening. If you want to find out more about the deer dog training blueprint, you can go to biggameindicatingdogs.com. If you want to find out more about the Palmico dog guide, you can go to palmicodogtraining.com. You can follow Big Game Indicating Dogs on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, all at under Big Game Indicating Dogs. Uh, same as Palmico Dog Training, our general dog training stuff. That's on Instagram, Facebook. We're not really that active over there these days, but there's still plenty of stuff there to look at. Um, and you can check out some of my own stuff at Paul John Michaels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube as well. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you in the next one.